My Family Recipe is a new podcast from Food 52 and Heritage Radio Network, bringing you cherished heirloom recipes and the stories behind them. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. On the one hand, our food system is very much influenced by the constraints of the desert in terms of operating in very high heat. And we get, you know, our seasonal rainfall is really concentrated in the monsoon season, which happens in late summer. The Southwest also imports a lot of water from other areas, particularly the Colorado River. So even though we are a desert environment, um, a lot of that imported water allows us to produce a an immense amount of food that otherwise wouldn't be possible in this region. That was Laurel Belande, the Assistant Director for the University of Arizona's Center for Regional Food Studies, talking about the environmental influences on her region's food system. Environment, cultural traditions, gentrification, all these forces shape what we eat and are deeply rooted in where we are. Regional foods are more than just their flavors and ingredients. They are a culmination of local culture and generations of experience. But how are historic foodways being altered by factors like warming oceans and rapidly evolving urban landscapes? In our increasingly interconnected world, does truly regional cuisine still exist? In this episode, join us in taking a look at some iconic regional dishes to understand what makes them special, how they're shifting, and how broadly they can be shared. I'm Hannah Forden, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. So in many corners of the U.S., the average person might not have a favorite type of crab. But down by the Chesapeake Bay, the answer is simple. Blue crabs. Maryland native Sam Burroughs takes us to the bay to talk about these beautiful swimmers. Growing up in Maryland, I always loved the time of year when winter finally melts into spring. The lengthening days and warming weather bring with them the crab feasts. Whether you're cracking open some claws by the beach, celebrating a birthday, or commemorating those you've lost, blue crabs are revered around the Chesapeake Bay. However, the bay has seen a sharp decline in its crab population. Numbers have dropped from 405 million to 282 million just this year. I spoke with Allison Colden, a Maryland fishery scientist from the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, to better understand these dwindling numbers. The decline that we saw in crab numbers this year is representative of the types of swings that we see in the blue crab population. Unlike some other more long-lived species, blue crabs have a tendency to bump up and down in terms of their numbers from year to year. So, while the blue crab shortages don't appear dire... Allison notes a variety of environmental factors influencing the blue crab's life cycles that scientists have been keeping an eye on. The 
have a very complex life history where the crab larvae are released at the mouth of the bay and they spend time offshore in the Atlantic Ocean before winds and tides bring those juvenile crabs back into the bay. So the number of crabs that make it back into the bay on an annual basis can be highly influenced by things like tropical storm season, winds and tides. In addition to the effects of storms on these crabs, Allison brought up concerns about the lack of suitable habitats, such as underwater grasses, for young crabs seeking refuge from predators. Which can also be negatively impacted by nutrient pollution. So runoff coming from the land, which causes algae blooms, which then shade out those underwater grasses. But if you can't live without a crab feast in your life, there are some actions you can take toward a sustainable and delicious future. Things like installing a rain barrel, installing a rain garden, better managing the stormwater that's coming off of your property, reducing the use of lawn fertilizers and picking up pet waste. All of these are individual actions that people can take, but also people need to think about the actions that they can take on a broader scale to influence policy. So reaching out to your local elected officials, letting them know that bay water quality is important to you, and supporting policies that will lead to a cleaner Chesapeake Bay will help not just the Chesapeake Bay, but those who are interested in eating those blue crabs in the long run. When the weather starts to warm again, let's start thinking about new ways to manage the runoff in our own backyards. And maybe then we can still sit down for a feast with friends for years to come. Eating crabs may be on the itinerary for those visiting the Chesapeake Bay, but there are some regional foods that visitors just don't seem to get. Cincinnati chili is one of them. Born of Greek immigrants in Ohio, the thin chili is served over spaghetti, or on a hot dog, which they call a coney. To many outsiders, it doesn't seem like the chili we're used to. It's not spicy, There are no peppers, but we're not here for the naysayers. Brianna Brady spoke to a Cincinnatian about his relationship to this dish. The website Deadspin, back in like, I want to say 2012, 2013, did a ranking of all of the regional foodstuffs. And it was like kind of a joke list. But Cincinnati Chili ranked on the bottom, underneath getting hit by a car. I knew it was a joke article and I still just like, I posted it on my Facebook, you know, I shared it everywhere I could. I was like, can you believe this? You know, that, that they've done to this to our chili. That's Nate Annan. If you couldn't tell, he is a hometown advocate of the Mediterranean spiced Cincinnati chili. More specifically, he's a defender of one of the most well-known purveyors of the Ohio dish, Skyline Chili. Whenever you it's skyline time. So, you know, every single town would have its own skyline. And, like, you kind of become attached to your specific Skyline Chili franchise. You get to know the wait staff. You get to know kind of other regulars and stuff. Like, I would go with my dad and my uncle all the time growing up. He can still rattle off his dad and uncle's orders. Variations on the three, four, or five-way chili. Those just mean chili with additions of cheese, beans, onions, or sometimes all three. But an order at Skyline isn't always just an order. I used to when I was like in high school, you know, you would get like the medium three-way 
and you know two cheese conies. So the cheese coney would be hot dog chili cheese. But now that I'm nearing 30, I can't do that anymore. <laughs> so <laughs> one of the real passages of time is like how much smaller my Skyline order is now than it was when I was 15. Nate doesn't have the opportunity to put in that smaller, more grown-up order all that often. After finishing graduate school, he moved to Washington, D.C. in 2020. I'm not anywhere near any place that you can buy Skyline. So in tough times, you have to innovate. So I have started just kind of like looking up copycat recipes online. And I've had some pretty good success with some. It's kind of nice to be able to like produce something that tastes like this thing from home uh, in your own kitchen. We all have foods like this. Things we love because of the role they've played in our lives and the places they remind us of. Family recipes, local restaurants. But even though Nate loves Skyline Chili, there is still one lingering question. When you have these kind of large swaths of the country that are making fun of Cincinnati chili, you kind of start to question, like, is it not good? Right? Is it just the memory, like the nostalgia that I attribute to Skyline Chili? But I think that ultimately, no. The answer is no. It's delicious. And it's, it's the thing that makes me feel at home. And like so many other things that people love, maybe it's not so important whether or not the rest of us think it's good. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a brief break. Good food is worth a thousand words. This is Arthi Menon, and I'm delighted to share a new podcast with you. My Family Recipe from Food 52 and Heritage Radio Network. Adapted from Food 52's much-loved column of the same name, the My Family Recipe podcast will bring its pages to life. Each episode of My Family Recipe brings you a cherished heirloom recipe and the story behind it from voices across the world of food. We'd open these tubs of dough and they would exhaust these incredible yeasty fumes and it just smelled like nothing else. It was so intoxicating. I'll interview writers and chefs, parents and children about what's passed down along with the foods that we know and love. Chinese people aren't like born with a download on how to like velvet chicken. You know, like that's not something that just like comes to you. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Meet and 3. Nashville hot chicken has become a phenomenon in the world of food, but few know about its origins or what it can tell us about the history of the city it's named for. Chapin Montague sat down with fellow Tennessean Rachel Martin, author of Hot Hot Chicken, A Nashville Story, to delve into this dish. Rachel begins the story with Thornton Prince III. Thornton Prince III was a very popular man with the ladies. And so he had a woman who thought that she should be his only person that he was turning to. And one night he went out and he ran around on her and came back and early, early one morning, fell asleep and he woke up the next morning and assumed she was going to cook him breakfast. 
She did cook Thornton a meal all right, taking every hot thing in the kitchen and mixing it with his favorite food, fried chicken, in order to punish him for his unfaithful night on the town. And instead, he thought it was delicious, and he shared it with his brothers, and she disappeared from his life. He claimed her hot chicken and opened a business. That business became Prince's Hot Chicken, founded in 1945 and widely regarded as Nashville's first hot chicken restaurant. And while Thornton's name and story remains in the title and the lore, it's the women in the family who have kept this business running. Women have been largely written out of how we talk about food, and especially Black women in the South have been erased from how we talk about food and how we talk about Southern history. And I I wanted to challenge that as best I could to just say this business that was opened by a man originated with a woman. It has been kept alive by women. So it is female owned and operated a black business that survived segregated Nashville. Rachel also discussed the dishes impact on the city of Nashville at large, a southern hotspot that has faced rapid gentrification in recent years. I think that many people are eager to latch on to anything that can survive despite the development that's happening. And food is something that can survive despite development, right? It's one of those ephemeral parts of culture. With so much new development, there's a desire to maintain a sense of history. And as Rachel says, food is often used to satisfy that craving for nostalgia, even if it means sacrificing the neighborhood's homes and kitchens the dish originated in. The neighborhoods are, are largely disappearing especially the Black neighborhoods. And so as a result, something like food can survive those transitions and can help us feel as though we are connected to some sort of mythical past, despite the changes that are happening around us physically. When it comes to giving credit where credit is due, Rachel thinks the dish's name would be a good place to start. When we call it Nashville Hot Chicken, we're lying to ourselves because it doesn't belong to the city. It belongs to the Prince family, or actually it belongs to that unnamed woman who tried to punish Thornton Prince. While hot chicken establishments are running red hot on their recent popularity, let's revisit one of the earliest cooking rituals, grilling meat. Whether standing in your backyard around a grill or gathering around a table with a gas stove, cooking and sharing meat together holds a place in many people's hearts. Amanda Silva explores the variations between Brazilian, Korean, and American-style barbecue. Barbecue, the art of cooking meat with the help of flames. The process varies from culture to culture. Some call it churrasco. Some prefer cookout, but barbecue is appreciated by people from all over the world, including Chef Balushin, a Brazilian-Korean whose ancestry influenced his taste in food. So Korean barbecue, I don't know if, if, if everyone's familiar, uh, but it's very common to eat around the table. So you have the, the, the maybe a charcoal or a gas stove on the center of the, the table, and the meat comes uh, sliced and small portions. And many of the cases that the meat's marinated in some sort of uh, a sauce. Pork is associated with spicy uh, seasoning and beef is associate, associated with a more sweet, savory uh, marinated. As the meat gets ready, people pick from the center. 
and they eat it with side dishes that are known for their intense flavor, kimchi, gochujang, chili paste sweeteners, and other fermented products. It's common to consume alcohol such as soju and beer with the meal. Apparently, that's one thing Koreans and Brazilians share, the love for alcoholic beverages. So there's two types of uh, Brazilian barbecue. If you go to a restaurant, there's the hojizu, right? Hojizu is an all-you-can-eat style of serving. The waiters will come to the side of the table with huge skewers filled with chunks of meat. The waiter serves it directly onto the plate. And if you go to a, a, a home barbecue, you know, a house barbecue, you have the, the, the grill and everything happens around the grill. You have the, the table set with the sides and it's very, it's very free. People eat standing, people eat sitting. There's not a lot of uh, protocols. Brazilian barbecue is more simple. It's just salt and fire. And that's what, what's amazed me. Sometimes some garlic, you know, it's very light. Uh, 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 seasoning, but basically salt and meat. It's all about the, the product. If you have a good quality meat, your barbecue will be amazing. Since the meat goes straight to the fire, time is an element that differentiates Brazilian from Korean barbecue. Chef Shen says it's an all-day event. The meat takes many hours to be cooked. In contrast, Korean barbecue's small portions means it's done faster, and the focus goes into the flavors. Korean flavors are very different from Brazilian flavors. We're very used to fermented food, which now it's 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 more um, common to people to have access to fermented food. But I remember when I was like a kid, like twenty years ago, twenty five years ago, fifteen years ago, uh, fermented food was very it was very new here. Uh, sweetness in, in food, it's, it's not popular in Brazil. The source of savory, the, the savory flavor here in Brazil, it's basically salt. Korean and Asian food has a lot of umami. American barbecue takes both cooking time and flavor into consideration, but it doesn't rely only on salt and garlic. Americans are rather adventurous with their sauce, much like Koreans. I think there's two types of American barbecue. Uh, there's the one that you do in your back, backyard, which is hamburger and sausages, hot dogs, uh, which is simple. But there's also the, the south part of the United States that, that brings the barbecue to a whole new level. It's all about the sauce and the smoke. The pork ribs, the sauce is usually uh, sweet and sour. It's a lot of carbs and a lot of you know fat and, and, and sauce and... The smokiness comes and for me it's amazing. Maybe it's the primal instinct present in us since caveman times, when prehumans learned how to make fires using sticks and flint. But there's a there, there's something about you know gathering around a fire to, to have this this kind of preparation of shuhasko and barbecue and you know all all different ways to consume. I think every culture has have, have you know the, the interaction of fire and meat, meat over fire. So I think that, that's why it's very easy to people to assimilate. Cooking around fire enables us to spend time together and therefore reinforces bonds that make us feel like we belong. Whether you're in Sensi, Maryland, Korea, or Brazil.
Special thanks this week to Brianna Brady, Sam Burroughs, Andriana Chu, Chapin Montague, and Amanda Silva. Meet and Three is produced by Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Hannah Forden. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song is composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Meet and Three is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and Three is powered by Simplecast. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or you'd just like to say hey, write to us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out.